0: Welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by AJC and the Times of Israel.
1: Each week, we take you beyond the headlines and help you understand what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people.
0: I'm Sefi Kogan.
1: And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman. Shana Tova, Sefi. We had a busy week here in the United States of America involving our president. Who did you have in the studio?
0: Well, Shana Tovada, you too, Mania. Yeah, I mean, Ukraine has been super in the news this week, and I feel like we haven't really explored the Jewish angle there. Volodymyr Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, is Jewish. And of course, Ukraine has a really important Jewish community, a lot of important Jewish history. So I sat down with Knan Lifshitz, a Europe based reporter for JTA, to kind of explore that whole angle of the ongoing Ukraine scandal. What about you?
1: Fascinating. Well, I spoke with Edward Berenson. He's a modern European historian at NYU, and he has just written a book after going back to his hometown in upstate New York to explore the one and only. Only case of blood libel in America. Yes, that disgusting medieval notion that Jews kidnap Christian children and kill them for their blood. It made its way to our shores in the early 20th century, and Professor Berenson tells us why.
0: Wow. And then there's also something that we have coming to us from the Times of Israel, right?
1: Yes. Amanda Dan, Jewish World and Archaeology Editor at Times of Israel, she explores the origins of Kol Nidre music and treats us to some wonderful tunes as well.
0: And then we'll close, as always, with Good for the Jews.
1: Which, you know, I always love.
0: (laughs) Here's to another great show. Let's do it. Volodymyr Zelensky exploded onto the scene in 2019 as the actor and comedian turned politician was elected president of Ukraine. Now he's found himself embroiled in American domestic politics as his phone call with President Trump is at the center of the impeachment inquiry currently taking place in Congress. Who is Zelensky? Where is Ukraine headed? And what does the latest news about him and President Trump mean for the future? To find out all this and more, we spoke with Kanan Lifshitz, European news reporter for the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. Knan, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Volodymyr Zelensky has found himself unwittingly dragged into the middle of American domestic politics. But the president of Ukraine is more than just the man on the other end of the line during President Trump's now infamous phone call. So when did Zelensky first come onto the scene as a global player?
2: One of the amazing things about Zelensky is he came out of nowhere. This guy started a television show called Servant of the People in 2015 for a television network in Ukraine that is owned by an oligarch named Kolomoisky. Remember that name? We'll get back to it a little bit later. And actually, in that show, he portrays a teacher who gets kind of thrown into the position of the president of Ukraine and therefore is not beholden to the corrupt politics and changes everything in that country. And then in 2018, he actually announced his candidacy and he wiped out the competition, won in a landslide, both rounds, 60% approval rating, and became the president of the Ukraine out of nowhere, not beholden to the corrupt politics of that country. And in fact, one of his first directives was, don't hang my portrait on your wall if you're a civil servant. I'm not God. I'm not the head of the party. I'm just a servant of the people. So, you know, a closing of the circle nonsense.
0: So tell us more about Servant of the People. Is it more like a West Wing kind of show or more like Veep?
2: So it's a comedy, uh-huh. it's a wacky comedy about this teacher who posts on Facebook really eloquent, piercing criticism of the system in Ukraine. The In some posts, he references the deep state in Ukraine and how corrupt the judiciary is and how you can't get justice and just how... Uh, a really badly designed and uh, shlemiel everything is in Ukraine. And that kind of props him up on a wave of discontent.
0: And so Zelensky's presidency, I mean, has that been a comedy as well? Or has he taken a serious turn since coming into office?
2: Well, throughout the campaign, he's been very noncommittal about key issues, like primary issue is how are you going to deal with Putin? And one of his catchphrases was, I'm going to speak to Putin on eye level, which works in Ukraine in a reference to how short he is. So, <laughs> both men so um, uh, his predecessor, Petro Petrosenko was a tall man. So, he kind of got off the hook with these charming one-liners throughout the campaign. And then he became president, and he actually had to uh, apply policy. And what he started off with a string of very bold moves. For example, he fired his entire cabinet and uh, led a reelection and replaced them. And right now, this all happened in May. He was elected in May. And, you know, Ukraine is a country of 45 million people. There's too many balls in the air to know exactly on which side he's going to land. But he certainly not behaved as this nonchalant guy who takes it all as a joke. Uh, Rather, as a reformer, a very serious-minded reformer against corruption and nepotism, he's actually behaving like a guided missile, like a politician, a born politician. Kind of imagine a, a state attorney being appointed leader, so taking out his corrupt
0: nemesis. And has he been successful in tackling corruption in Ukraine?
2: Well, like I said, he was elected in May. This is September. It's a very big machine, and it's going to take a lot of time to correct course. So that's too early to tell right now. We're going to have to look at the judiciary. We're going to have to look at test cases of uh, sons and daughters of people who are famous or powerful in order to see whether changes occurred. And uh, already what happened with uh, President Trump does not bode well for Zelensky because in that phone call, he appeared servile. He basically told Trump, oh yeah, I'm on it. I'm going to look at what Joe Biden's son did in Ukraine. He was basically bootlicking in a way that is very reminiscent of the way that Ukrainian presidents and leaders have run foreign policy. So in that regard, that was a a huge demerit. Uh, He's also not been very active in Uh, firing judges. The big problem in Ukraine is judges. He hasn't tackled telecom giants. And another demerit working against Zelensky is the fact that he was very tied to Kolomoisky. This is a Jewish oligarch who is known as a shark. In fact, this guy kept a shark tank at his (laughs) office because he admired the animal so much, Uh, something that impressed a lot of interviewees. A very cutthroat, you know, no-nonsense, uh, Ukrainian oligarch and the worst of uh, of the connotation of that word. So this guy gave him his show. This guy gave him his break. And what is he going to ask in return from Zelensky? He could ask for plenty.
0: Hmm. Um, Kanan, you described uh, Zelensky's manner on the phone call with President Trump as servile. I'm sure that Ukrainians don't necessarily like to see, I don't think any citizen would like to see the the leader of their country ingratiating themselves in that way with another world leader. But from a certain perspective, uh, from those of us in the West, should we perhaps be Glad to see that kind of deferential tone toward the president of the United States as opposed to toward the president of Russia? You know, Ukraine is one of these countries that's kind of always balanced on a knife's edge between teetering toward the West or toward Russia.
2: Well, that's an interesting question, actually. Uh, Listen, uh, Ukraine in 2014, a little bit of background uh, Ukraine was completely changed, changed its course, and Broke away from the sphere and influence of Russia in a revolution that toppled the anti- penultimate president uh, Yanushenko, and um, this guy was close to Putin. He was corrupt, and a backlash developed in Ukraine. There was a revolution. He was ousted. A new guy, Petro Petroshenko, or Poroshenko, was brought in to replace him uh, with many promises few of them materialized. So this country was already broken away from, the, from Russia. And, and that balance that you mentioned didn't really exist for Ukraine. In fact, I think it's, um, it's not something that goes down well uh, with Ukrainian audiences, because Ukraine, at the end of the day, needs to find a way to deal with this giant Russia on its doorstep the confrontational policies of Poroshenko didn't really materialize, and they brought uh, financial ruin to Ukraine. The Grisna, uh the national currency, lost two-thirds of its value uh, compared to 2013 because of this confrontational policies. At the end of the day, sloganeering is nice, but Ukraine needs to get some gas. It needs fuel. It needs to deal with this enormous might of the Russian army on its border. And Zelensky promised a more pragmatic attitude. When he's being deferential to Trump, it gives the impression that he's still holding out for American support to rescue him from Russia's clutches. Maybe the EU will come in and help them. That's the kind of um, rationale that guided Poroshenko. So, In a sense, that's the failure.
0: Mm -hmm. So one thing that we haven't touched on yet is that Volodymyr Zelensky is actually Jewish. And in fact, when he was elected, Ukraine briefly became the first country outside of Israel to have both a Jewish president and a Jewish prime minister, uh, Volodymyr Groysman. So how Jewish is Zelensky? Is that a major part of his identity?
2: Zelensky is unapologetically Jewish, which is a lot. And if you're a Ukrainian politician who isn't kind of serving that Jewish slot, there are some lawmakers in Ukraine who are in parliament basically to represent the Jewish minority. Zelensky was never one of them, and yet, in an interview with Bernard Henri Lavi, the French philosopher, he asked him, "So you're Jewish?" And then Zelensky, this was mid-campaign, he said. Yeah, well, that's the least of my problems, the the most minor point that my critics have against me. And I kind of, again, the self deprecating sense of humor that he's so <laughs> famous for. But he never denied it. His um, parents were teachers in a small town in uh, central Ukraine, uh, both Jewish, very Jewish names, and, you know, Soviet Jewish. So everybody, you know, you're Jewish. Everybody knows you're Jewish, but it's not like you make a big deal out of it, mm-hmm. just suffer some discrimination for it. That's, that's kind of where you pigeonhole the Zelenskys. And, uh, and that's a lot, because if you take Yulia Timoshenko, a leader of the 2004 revolution, everybody knows that her mother is Jewish, but it's like a secret you don't admit, which makes sense because Ukraine had 1.5 million Jews before the Holocaust. Not all of them were killed, obviously, and uh, they kind of evaporated into the ether in Ukrainian society. So when a politician that's running for the highest office says, "Yeah, I'm Jewish," so what of it? Uh, that's a big deal. Hmm.
0: Is anti-Semitism a major issue in Ukraine? You know, it's it's hard to imagine Jews rising to such heights if there were rampant Jew hatred. But on the other hand, I think many people don't know much about. Jews in Ukraine other than Babi and maybe Bogdan Khmelnytsky? You know, how big of an issue is anti-Semitism in Ukraine today? Uh,
2: Traditionally, Ukraine was one of the places where there was the least amount of anti-Semitism in the Russian Empire. It was the Pale of Settlement. So where Jews were allowed to settle, there was this understanding in society that they are a part of us. Uh, Yiddish was uh, one of the formal languages of several pounds in uh, Ukraine, even though it wasn't independent at the time. And so it's not that bubbling hatred that you see in other places like, uh, like Hungary, for example, rampant anti-Semitism. But at the same time, we have to admit that uh, Ukraine right now has one of the highest rates of anti-Semitism anywhere. In the former Soviet Union, this was documented in a 2017 report by the Israeli Absorption Immigration Absorption Ministry in a report that did not go down well with uh, Ukrainian officials. Basically, it said that Ukraine has more anti-Semitic attacks, had more of them in 2017 than the rest of the FSU. Combined, we're talking wow. about about 100, 150 incidents that year, and that's more than all across the FSU. The former, Soviet, the former Soviet, Union. Soviet Union. And, you know, there are some pretty anti-Semitic places in the former Soviet Union. What happened is probably the revolution, that revolution of breaking away from Russia, triggered a nationalist sentiment, and um, then it triggered a backlash against this national sentiment, and who are we going to blame? the Jews. So you see incidents of Jewish graves being destroyed and synagogues being uh, harassed and uh, besieged more than you saw in the past. And that harks back to history, because when you see Russian encroachment in the eyes of many Ukrainians, that equals Jews, just like in Soviet times, when the Jews, this is the stereotype, uh, this is the trope, Jews imposed communism on us. And now they're trying to bring us back into the clutches of Russia and cost us our independence. That triggers the sentiment.
0: Well, Knan, as you say, Zelensky's only about five months into his term. So we'll be watching closely to see what else he's able to accomplish, how else he might turn up here in the States in domestic politics, and what his rule means for anti-Semitism in Ukraine. Thank you so much for joining us and for sharing your knowledge with us today.
2: Thank you, Fanatova.
1: Barbara Griffiths was only four years old when on September 22, 1928, she wandered into the woods near her home in Messina in upstate New York and disappeared. Hundreds of townspeople conducted a frantic search for the missing girl, and a rumor quickly started to spread that the Jews in Messina had kidnapped the little girl for a ritual killing. A rather notorious and anti-Semitic accusation waged against Jews for centuries, called blood libel. Fortunately, a day later, the little girl was found, and the rumor was put to rest. But the fear it stoked in the small Jewish community of Messina was not. Born in Messina, Edward Berenson grew up hearing the cautionary tale Now a modern European historian, he decided to return to his roots and explore just what led to this hysteria, which he writes about in his new book, The Accusation, Blood Libel in an American Town. Professor Berenson is with us now to share what he learned. Professor, welcome. Happy to be here. Before we learn about your journey and how you put this book together, let's talk about what Blood Libel actually is and how it came about. I know it as this ridiculous notion of the blood of Christian children was used to make the matzah. But I know it's a little bit more than that. And I know some many people, unfortunately, don't think it's that ridiculous. So can you explain why?
3: Right. So it's an old libel, an old accusation against Jews It goes all the way back to the 1100s. And the idea is that the Jews need to kill Christian children for their religious rituals. And the first blood libel that we know about took place in England in around 1150, and that one didn't yet involve blood, but it did involve torture. And the Jews of this little town of Norwich, England, were accused of crucifying a young boy and letting him slowly die on the cross. And a couple of centuries later on the european continent this this notion got turned into a blood libel because after 1215 this is when it became a dogma of the church that the eucharist involved the transformation of blood and wine into the the body and the blood of christ mm-hmm.
1: Right, the bread and the, the wine bread and turns wine into the body transferred
3: and blood. into the body and blood of Christ. Okay, and so this became a dogma of the church. That is, if you were a Catholic, you had to believe this, and there were plenty of Catholics who didn't believe it. You know, it's a kind of strange idea. You have wine and you have bread, and this is transformed in ritual to the body and blood of Christ. And so the church officials cracked down on Catholics, and they mostly came into line. And, but, of course, the Jews didn't believe this. And so this sort of added to the notion among Christians that Jews were, were heretics, that they had the wrong beliefs, and that somehow they had these wrong beliefs because they were involved with blood rituals of one sort or the other.
1: Wow. And so they somehow transferred the blood, the whole notion of transubstantiation, into Jewish ritual of imagination. (laughs) Yeah,
3: it may may have been the idea somehow that Jews were were the, the kind of people who really did use blood, real blood. So it wasn't a transformation from wine into blood that somehow the Jews didn't want to believe this because they really did use blood in their religious rituals. Wow. And so the Catholics said, we don't really use blood, but we have this belief that a miracle takes place during the ceremony of the Eucharist. You don't have miracles, so you must use actual blood. So, something like that. I mean, there are other complications about all this that I don't know whether we want to go into or, or not. But it really, after 1215 when transubstantiation becomes a dogma of the church this is when ritual murder begins to involve blood and so the original blood libels take place after that
1: okay so i was going to ask you i mean there's so many anti-semitic tropes there's greed there's power i I shouldn't be sitting here listing these Uh, but why such a primal graphic trope i mean why did they go there
3: it's it's there isn't a great explanation what we know is during the period when you first had these accusations this was a period of just intense hostility to Jews on the part of Christians this would be the period right before Jews began to be kicked out of every European country right England right. France the Germanies everywhere Jews were ejected. And so it it had to do with the tightening of beliefs in the Catholic Church. It had to do with the Crusades. So the Crusades, the Second Crusades, roar through the European continent right at the end of the 10 hundreds. And so Jews are really targeted, forced to convert. Many were killed, property destroyed and, and and everything. And so the crusades then sort of spark in part a period of really intense hostility to to Jews. And then there are theological debates that target the Jews. You know, the Jews are people who have been confronted with the truth about Christ and they don't believe it. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so we can't tolerate this. And so, so it's during this period, 11, 12, 1300, that, that hostility toward Jews is really intense.
1: Okay. So how does it survive the centuries? We're talking about a 20th century story here. Mm-hmm. So how does blood libels survive that long?
3: Right. So that's a great question. So for one thing, in the early years, so the 1100s to the end of the 1400s, there are blood libels all the time. one after the other, and they usually result in violence against Jews. And then during the Protestant Reformation, the blood libel subsides for a time. The problem in the Protestant Reformation is witchcraft. Ah. Okay. And so (laughs) you get through the Protestant Reformation, and the blood libel comes back because people retain memories of it. And they retain memories of it because it gets— etched into Catholic iconography. Uh And so the boys who were supposedly the victims of the Jewish blood libels, they became saints. Uh There was a famous, infamous case in 1475, a little boy named Simon. Jews were accused of ritually murdering him, and he became a saint of the Catholic Church. And so you can still go in Italy to churches and see... You can see frescoes and all kinds of other works of art that glorify little Simon. Now, after Vatican II, this was all banned and Simon was no longer a saint and so on. But when Catholics would go to church and see graphic depictions, and they are graphic. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you want me to go into this, but you see a little boy being stuffed into a barrel with nails sticking out alive and you see a stereotypical-looking Jew, you know, with a hooked nose, mm. collecting in a vessel the blood as it drips out of the baby. Mm. And these are babies. Yeah. You see this stuff on the walls of churches. Yeah, and and so, so it's hard this is to what shake. A, what allows it to sink in and stay there. Yeah,
1: interesting. Okay, so why did it take hold in Messina? Yeah. Did it have something to do with the current events, the politics of the time? Why did it take right.
3: hold? So this is what happened and you've got to go back to Europe for a second and that's because there's a big revival of the blood libel at the end of the 19th century. Mm-hmm. Germany, Poland, Hungary, Greece, all over the place. Mm -hmm. And this has to do with rapid industrialization and changing demography. And Jews, some of whom were industrialists and bankers, they get blamed Mm -hmm. for this. And Mm -hmm. so you see a new wave. I mean, the modern anti-Semitism really dates from the end of the 19th century, which is why you have lots of blood libels. So fast forward a couple of decades to Messina, New York, a little Mm -hmm. town in upstate right on the St. Lawrence River. Because it's on the St. Lawrence River, there's hydroelectric power. Okay. Yeah. Big company, Alcoa, the Aluminum Company of America, opens up a plant there in 1902. Mm-hmm. They need workers. Where do they get those workers? They go to Ellis Island and they get people coming off the boat. Many of those people come from places in Europe where the blood libel had been common in the late 19th century. Mm-hmm. So that's number one. Number two, where else do the workers come from? Well, they walk across the border from Quebec. Ah. Uh a Catholic, very traditionalist, conservative province at that time where, sadly, anti-Semitism was rampant. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And because Quebec is so close, it's five miles away from the center of town. And so the Quebecois remain in contact with their family. And so the myths and libels that are circulating there, they, they stay alive. Yeah. And so some of those people would have brought okay. that notion in. The clan has a big revival, the Ku Klux Klan in the 1920s. And then finally, there's Henry Ford. Mm-hmm. And Henry Ford is a really bad guy. <laughs> I mean, he published the only explicitly anti-Semitic newspaper in American history. Mm-hmm. His editor in 1924 went over to Germany to have a meeting with Goebbels. Mm-hmm. And so this was a paper with a big circulation, more papers printed than the Sunday New York Times. Yeah. A lot of people read the thing. Mm-hmm. And that's one ingredient, too. And then finally, there's the presidential election of 1928, Mm -hmm. where there was the first Catholic candidate, Al Smith. And Mm -hmm. so there was just a vast amount of religious hostility. And it turns out that Al Smith's two main advisors were Jews.
1: Ah, and that was but that seems counterintuitive that a Catholic candidate would have Jewish advisors when that was where the tension was.
3: So that's really interesting. In the 1920s, there's so much kind of hostility toward foreigners, toward immigrants, and there's this idea that we need to return to a 100% Americanism, which means Protestants from Northern Europe. And so Jews and Catholics and African Americans, to, to some extent, formed a kind of de facto alliance because they were the victims. Okay. Of these ideas.
1: Okay. Even though some of the anti-Semitism was coming from Catholic circles, they actually found a common thread right. but, uh, in these Right. And decades. these were
3: European Catholic circles. Okay. So the really interesting thing is that before this Messina case, the blood libel was essentially unknown mm-hmm. in the United States. And that's because... American culture is essentially a Protestant culture, and the blood libel comes out of European Catholic culture. You don't see it really in Protestant countries in in Europe. And so American Catholics, until the late 19th century, when you had immigration no longer from Ireland, but from Central and and Southern Europe, where there are a lot more Catholics— this is when the blood libel came to the United States and also via Quebec.
1: And so and this was the one and only case in America of blood libel at least to this magnitude, right? Yeah,
3: yeah. So there are re- records in the Yiddish press of a Polish immigrant saying to a Jewish neighbor, "You kill babies." Mm. But the Messina case is the only time in American history where the public authorities credited the accusation and acted on it as if it were true
1: yeah so tell us a little bit more about how this case unfolded in Messina I mean was this just a few bigoted individuals who had this theory that uh, Barbara had been kidnapped or was it bigger than this I
3: think it was bigger than that Mm -hmm. the mayor and the police chief summon the rabbi Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. come into the police station and they question him and what they ask him is they say rabbi do your people perform human sacrifices on Jewish holidays? It turned out that this was the eve of Yom Kippur.
1: Oh, because it was in September.
3: It was in September, that makes sense. right? And so, you know, they got the story a little, little bit wrong. In Europe, it usually happened around Passover and Easter, <laughs> right. right? And so they uh, they knew it had something to do with the Jewish holiday. This was Yom Kippur. So imagine this rabbi, originally from Lithuania, immigrates to the United States in 1915, and the mayor of this town says, do you, "Do you do ritual murder?" Wow! And so he's he he really the rabbi can't believe it because he believes rightly that the United States has been actually a pretty good place for Jews, relatively speaking. Not mm-hmm. that there's no discrimination, not that there's no anti-Semitism. Compared to Europe, it's better. Right. And so he just is utterly horrified mm-hmm. that this happens. He walks out of the police station, and then there's a crowd of about 300 people standing outside. There are conflicting reports about the temperature of the crowd. Some say they're really hostile. Some say people are just curious. And so we don't know whether we can sort of imagine that all 300 people who are out there think that the Jews really did kidnap and, and murder Barbara. We do know that there were firefighters and police officers who shown their flashlight into the windows of Jewish shops to see if they could find the body. Mm-hmm. So we, we know that. So we don't know how many people believe this, but I think there's pretty good evidence that it wasn't just a handful.
1: Mm-hmm. And he did fear that he was facing an angry mob he when did. he walked out of that he station. Did.
3: He did, and so fortunately no one abused him. But he was it was scary. And so he gets to the synagogue, which is just a couple of blocks away, and basically the entire Jewish community is holed up there. Which the, is about
1: what size in the It's hundred people. Okay. It's a
3: hundred people. It's about twenty five families.
1: Okay. All right. So you were born in Messina. Yes. Were you raised? Did you did you spend much time there in your childhood?
3: So I was there every summer. So my parents left when I was two and a half. Okay. But my grandparents, uncles, aunts, cousins, they were all there. And so we would go and visit every summer. And so I maintained contact with Messina basically until my my relatives had passed away.
1: And so in what context did you hear the story?
3: It was just a strange, terrible thing happened in Messina. I'd always heard about this. My father was eight years old when this happened okay. in, in 1928. And so... He knew about it. He grew up with the story. He wasn't really old enough to process it all that well. But my my grandparents, my great grandparents, uncles and aunts, when we would go in the summer, they would say something about it. And so it was always lodged in the back of my mind. And I always knew about it. And Finally, I decided, Okay, I'm going to I'm going to write about this. I'm going to explore this. I'm going to really try to get to the bottom of this of this story, which affected my family directly and me indirectly.
1: Yeah. You talk a lot about using personal biography as a lens to study history. I'm curious if you require your students to read this book or plan to since it's, it's just out and and how you hope that they will apply this.
3: A great question. So I always am a little sort of hesitant to require my students to read my books. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I'll certainly talk about it with them. And if they're interested in these kinds of subjects, then I'll recommend that they read it. But my students are at NYU are very often extremely interested in their family backgrounds. There's a, a large number of students who come from immigrant families from all over the place, and their stories are really varied, and they want to know them. They don't want to forget them. And so this is one thing that I like to emphasize, that especially since you come from someplace else, it's really important to keep those stories alive because they they create a richness in in our culture.
1: Yeah. And how can we apply the lessons learned in this book to today's political climate, to the anti-Semitic incidents we see happening today?
3: Right. And so I think we have to be vigilant. And one of the, the ingredients of the Messina blood libel of 1928 is the existence of an anti-Semitic newspaper. Mm-hmm. That is a form of media that circulates ugly ideas about Jews. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, we now, again, have these forms of media on the Internet. Yeah. yeah. HN. And mm-hmm. so that's, that's what's worrisome. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I don't think it's likely that these terrible ideas are going to get into the mainstream press. I don't think it's likely, at least in the near future, that we'll have prominent political officials who will credit these ideas, who will give them legitimacy. Yeah. But if that happens, then we have grounds for worry. So we have to be vigilant against that kind of thing.
1: Yeah. Professor, this book is so interesting. Thank you so much. I I could talk to you for hours about this. But the title of the book is The Accusation, Blood Libel in an American Town. Thank you so much, Professor, for joining us. Thank you. And now for a special segment in honor of the upcoming Yom Kippur observance. Amanda Borscheldan, Jewish World Editor from the Times of Israel, takes us on a tour of the history of Kol Nidre music.
4: To get to Israel's National Library Music Collection, You first pass by the remarkable, shockingly colored stained glass windows created by Mordechai Ardon to commemorate Isaiah's vision of eternal peace. Located in Jerusalem, the music collection is housed in a secure, climate-controlled vault just past a listening room where the public can enjoy the library's massive sound collection, or watch YouTube videos like most of the ultra-Orthodox Yeshiva students using the public computer stations today. Dr. Flam, the director of the Music Department of the National Library, pulled several versions of Kol Nidre from the vault for us and discussed its various incarnations. The song is one of a set of some ten foundational liturgical Ashkenazi melodies, which are grouped under the label of Mi Sinai, or From Sinai Tunes, she said. There are religious Jews who believe that along with the oral and written Torah, Moses also received from God musical prayers, as well as the trope marks to read the Bible. Scholars such as Flam do not subscribe to this belief, but do see the label as a mark of the melody's significance to the Jewish community. But does that significance explain its emotional pull? Another explanation could be found in its musical structure said Flam. The melody uses what musicologists call a sighing motif with its half-step descent, one syllable on each note. The tune innately evokes a musical lament. But every explanation is only an explanation. It can't be proven by science. Music is an abstract language. The composer of the tune is anonymous, but as Flam clarified, Anonymous creations were always originally created by a person. We just don't know who he or she were. But once it is written down, the music is frozen. But why would a non-Jewish composer such as Max Buch spend time on writing a setting for a Hebrew melody? Conductor and music historian Leon Botstein wrote, that Jews were a crucial part of German culture. They were eager participants in amateur music societies, and they represented a disproportionate share of the audience for concerts. Indeed, Bruch himself appears to have counted on the Jewish audience for his decision to arrange Kol Nidre in his setting. It's a mashup of the Hebrew tune with a version of Byron's A Weep for Those That Wept on Babel's Stream, which was written by Jewish composer Isaac Nathan.
2: I got to know both melodies in Berlin, where I had much
4: to do with the children of Israel in the choral society. The success of Kol Nidre is assured because all the Jews in the world are for it. Ironically, at the same time that Bruch attempted to capitalize on what he assumed was the Jews' connection to Kol Nidre, Many leaders in the burgeoning Reform Jewish community were battling to have it taken out of circulation. The reasons are manifold, but since the Middle Ages, because of its oath-breaking nature, Kol Nidre has been used to illustrate the duplicitous nature of the Jews. The Reconstructionist movement added it back into its holiday services in 1941, but the Reform Movement restored the full Aramaic text to its Union prayer book only in 1961. So again, what makes the recitation of a prayer of dubious meaning the highlight of many Jews' year? Freudian psychoanalyst Theodor Reich connects the tune to the moment in time and the deeply primitive instincts it triggers.
2: The deeply affecting melody to which has been set this apparently prosaic formula is justified, since it is not related to the present wording, but to the secret feelings which have become unconscious. The kol nidre is the acknowledgement of forbidden wishes of pious people expressed in a distorted and
4: unrecognizable form. Wrote Reich, maybe, or maybe the secret is that kol nidre is simply an outstanding melody. It caught the attention of so many Jews and non-Jews. If only we could explain it, we'd write a thousand more like that, because then we'd have the recipe.
0: it's time for our closing segment, Good for the Jews, where each week I share one final thought about a recent development in the world and try to answer that age-old question. Is it good for the Jews? The 80s. Good for the Jews? Dust off your Ferris Bueller VHS tape, practice your moonwalk, and bust out your Walkmans. Or is it Walkmen? The 80s are back. No, not the 1980s. That decade is consigned to the history books. I'm talking about the 5780s, the new decade on the Hebrew calendar that began this week on Rosh Hashanah. And even though I was born in 1991, just after the end of the last 80s, this new decade has me feeling nostalgic and reflective. What physical and metaphorical barriers will we tear down in these 80s, like the Berlin Wall came down in 1989? What will bring America together in the way 106 million people united to watch the finale of M.A.S.H. in 1983? What will drive us apart like the Cola Wars did in the early 80s as people chose up sides between Coke and Pepsi? What will be the Betamax of this decade, the innovation that seems poised to sweep the world and then disappears almost overnight? And many of the issues that Jewish advocates are concerned with today first erupted in the 1980s. That's when Hezbollah first began its murderous reign of terror and when Israel fought the first war in Lebanon and when the first Palestinian Intifada took place. It's when the Baltic states began their push for independence from the Soviet Union, and autonomy that looks more fragile today than at any time since. And it's when the Schengen Agreement created open European borders, a status now imperiled by Brexit. Each new year is a time for reflection and resolve. As these new 80s begin, here's to remembering that it's up to us to build the world we want to live in. If we can commit to that, then the 80s will be good for the Jews. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify, or learn more at ajC.org/people of the Pod the views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC and the times of Israel. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at people at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us.
1: Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC and the Times of Israel. Our producer is Kukong Do. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People Love the Pod.